Hey, welcome to Faithfully Memphis. This is Emily Austin for the Episcopal Church in West Tennessee. Each week on our show, we bring to you interesting stories and perspectives and all the things that make the faithful life one that always brings something new. And this week is definitely something new. When I got an email from Father Christian Signoni, who's the Associate Rector of St. Andrew's Church in Collierville a little earlier this year, telling me that he I needed to get in touch with Sarah Walmay and Laura Hall so that I could learn about a lady named Miss Anna Holden. I got in touch with Sarah and Laura And before I knew it, I was in the nave of St. Andrews and we were producing basically a radio play. So that was a first time for us. In today's show, what you're going to hear is a really immersive, interesting story of how a woman named Anna Holden, who was born in the time of the Civil War, what her life was like growing up in West Tennessee and eventually moving to Collierville later in the 19th century and helping to found an Episcopal church that people still continue to call home today. It's St. Andrews. I want to thank Sarah and Laura for sharing this interesting story in such a fun, entertaining way and making history come to life. They often do the show that you're about to hear on campus so you can actually see objects and places that are referenced in the story of Anna Holden. So sit back and relax. We're going to do a new thing on Faithfully Memphis this week. We're going to learn about Anna Holden and the role that she played in the establishment of the Episcopal community here in Memphis and West Tennessee about a hundred years ago. Enjoy! As I was walking into the church today, I noticed the history marker outside the building. It says that you, Miss Anna, are known as the guiding force in the founding of St. Andrews. Well, first I want to say hello to all of you and welcome to St. Andrews Episcopal Church here in Collierville. Yes, my name is Miss Anna Holden and I'm so happy to be here today to talk to you about this special place that's near and dear to my heart because I guess you'd say that I'm responsible for giving St. Andrews its beginning way back in the 1800s. I've been called the guiding force in the founding of the church, perhaps because of my school teacher personality, but I think you know who the real guiding force was. I've always said that the Lord used my school teacher personality to get something done when it needed to be done. You see, back, let's see, I believe it was 1876, yes it was, I attended the Dyson Convention at St. Mary's Cathedral way down in Memphis. 
I was only 34 years old. I asked my dear friend Father Gray, who was the priest at that time at St. James's Church in Bolivar, to help us establish what I guess you, we were calling it a mission in Collierville. How exciting. He agreed to travel to Collierville once a month to hold services for a few of us at the Mangum home. Still a lovely home today in Collierville on Natchez Street, not far from the church. The Mangums were so kind to let us not only have services at their beautiful home, they even invited the visiting priest to spend the night. And, of course, they entertained him royally. Okay, that is so interesting, Miss Anna. And that really makes me want to know more about your background. Let's backtrack a few years. In fact, we're going to go way back to 1842. I understand that's the year you were born out of LaGrange, Tennessee. So, please, can you share what life was like growing up in LaGrange? Boy, howdy. You just let out my secret. That makes me a very antique lady, doesn't it, since I was born in 1842? But yes, that is true. And I understand that LaGrange is still such a lovely little town, about 24 miles from Collierville. I've been told that today you can drive there in 30 minutes. But when I was a young girl, horse and buggies took us all day long, and a train Ride took a very long time as well, and it was so dusty. At that time, Collierville was a very small farming community. Memphis. Oh, Memphis was a rough and rowdy river town. And LaGrange was the cultural center of the Mid-South, some say the entire South, because we hosted ballet, symphony concerts, and we had several colleges. When I was only six months old, I was baptized in an exquisite Batiste day gown that came all the way from Scotland. All four of my siblings wore it as well, Kate, John, William, and Emmett. Don't you love the name William Holden? Mm -hmm. He was one of my favorites. LaGrange, of course, means beautiful village. Oh, and our church was named Emmanuel Episcopal Church. It was built 10 years before I was even born, and I understand it's still there today. And I've heard they're still hosting the fall festival that we had back when I lived there. On a Sunday or a Saturday every year in October, and that it's not to be missed. I still remember a letter that Papa wrote and presented to me for my 10th birthday in LaGrange with words of wisdom to read and reread for many years to come. Please listen oh so carefully, and you might learn something. My dear father was such a loving father. My darling Anna, you're turning 10 years old today. Your beloved mama and I are very proud of you for all that you've already done in your young life. And I know you'll continue to please God and make your family proud of you for years to come. Mama and I want you, sweet Anna, to continue to find joy in the journey that God has set before you. There are many words of wisdom I could share with you, but the best ones to plan in your heart Come straight from the Holy Bible that we read every night. I hope you'll try to memorize these verses that I've chosen for you. Romans 12, 11 and 12. And keep in mind that I have changed the words a little bit from the King James Anna so that you'll really understand these. 
quote, do not be lazy, but work hard. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Be joyful because you have hope. Be patient when trouble comes. Be faithful in prayer, end quote. And Anna, when life gets tough, and believe me, it will, be sure to keep this verse from Joshua 1.9 close to your heart. Remember that I have commanded you to be strong and brave, so don't be afraid. The Lord your God is with you everywhere you go. It is my prayer, Anna, that you will encourage others with the spirit of joy and the spirit of optimism, and that you will always see goodness and give thanks in all things. Always know that your mom and I love you very much, precious Anna. Happy 10th birthday from your devoted Papa. So you've piqued my interest. Tell me more about your growing up years, please. Oh, I have such fond memories growing up in LaGrange and how I love to read books. And it was so much fun to write in what Nana called my thankful book. You see, Nana taught me to be grateful to our Heavenly Father for all the many blessings in my life. I remember one day I was ever more thankful that the roof had been fixed just before a major rainstorm came through LaGrange and our hand-painted murals on our dining room walls were not ruined. Another day I was thankful for a hug from my baby brother William when he took his first steps. And of course I wrote down that I loved listening to Papa read Bible stories as we gathered around a warm cozy fire singing Jesus Loves Me. Not just one verse but all five verses, and listening to my siblings play violin as I played the piano. Oh, and giving John and William a ride in Papa's wooden wheelbarrow. I think you get the idea. Perhaps you should try writing in a thankful book, too. Nana always told me that gratitude turns what you have into enough. Oh, I did continue to write in my my grateful book, but our lives turned completely upside down on September the 16th, 1853, when my beautiful mama, Ann Eliza Holden, died at the age of 40. And then six weeks later, my youngest baby brother, Emmett, died at the age of 18 months. And as you can imagine, a lot of my time suddenly was spent helping Papa and my grandmother with my younger siblings. And you know, just a few years later, at the age of 15, I was able to attend LaGrange Female College, and I graduated four years later with a degree in education. I taught in Holly Springs and in LaGrange. Well, sadly, I'm afraid that those lovely parties, the ballets, the concerts, they ended soon. Papa started smelling trouble coming to our little town of LaGrange, and he decided it was a good idea for me to leave town and accept a teaching job at nearby Jones Plantation, where I thankfully lived safely during that terrible war that ravaged our country from 1861 to 1865. Did you have any type of communication with your papa while you were living at Jones Plantation during those war years? 
I do have a letter that Papa wrote. It was very hard to get mail at that time, so I really treasure this one. Papa wrote it to me on June the 14th, 1862. My dearest Anna, I do hope you're enjoying your time at Jones Plantation. I'm ever more thankful that you're safe and sound there and not here in LaGrange. Since yesterday, Union troops have taken possession of the town, and I heard one of their generals say that because the town is on a high bluff and connected so well by railroad, it makes a natural military outpost. Folks around town are saying there are at least 40,000 soldiers in our little town. They've even taken our Emanuel Episcopal Church. They're using it for what they call Depot of Ordinance. Several skirmishes have taken place near here, so when needed, they've started tearing out those beautiful pews and using them for coffins to bury the dead soldiers. Anna, one of your favorite homes, Woodlawn, is now West Tennessee headquarters for Union General William T. Sherman and Hancock Hall that was just finished in 1857. It's home now to General U.S. Grant and his wife, Julia. I hope to hear from you soon, my precious Anna. Remember to start your daily prayers as I do. We thank you, God, for the gift of life. Thank you, God, for the gift of health. And thank you, God, for your precious son, Jesus Christ, your loving and always devoted Papa. Let's jump ahead to 1873. I believe someone told me that you finally moved to Carterville that year. Yes, it was 1873 when I finally got to move to this little village of Collierville to teach at Bellevue Female College, located where today's University of Memphis, Collierville Campus, and Collierville Schools Administration Building are located just down the street here from St. Andrews on College Street. I'm so happy there's finally a college on College Street again. Well, Collierville was very, very different back in the 1870s. As you can imagine, folks were trying to rise from the ashes. For years after the war, the citizens of Collierville struggled to rebuild and make it a town once again. Oh, I have such fond memories of a lovely two-story bandstand that was built in the brand-new town square, where the town square is still located today. Oh, I have wonderful, happy summer, spring, and fall memories of concerts there. And I just always remember how beautiful music would soothe our souls. Yes, things were definitely on the upswing. Lots of new construction going on. Things were really getting better around here. And then, like a thief in the night, the yellow fever epidemic spread from Memphis all the way here, killing so many of our citizens. The yellow jack, as it was called, was so bad that there weren't enough well people to bury the dead. 
Laura, I hear some articles from the Avalanche newspaper. I'll let you share a few paragraphs. Okay, let's see here. The Avalanche, September 18, 1878 edition. Dr. P.A. Perkins Sr., his wife and son, are all victims of the dreadful yellow fever. Dr. Perkins, the tall Roman form of a man, has gone to the tomb on September 12th, followed by his lovely wife and talented son, day by day succeeding each other. Their spirits have knocked at the door of eternity. All three Perkins will be buried at Magnolia Cemetery. Let's see. This one is the Avalanche, September 19, 1878 edition. Carterville has made a request to the Howard Association to visit Carterville as soon as possible. This benevolent organization, created in New Orleans back in 1855, gives aid to victims during the yellow fever epidemics. They send professional nurses and doctors to help care for the sick feed the hungry, set up orphanages, pick up dead bodies from homes, and see to burying the dead. Each doctor carries a knife or two, his own pocket watch for taking the patient's pulse. And since there are no druggists left in the town, the doctors carry their own arsenic tonic, bottles of gin, tonic water, morphine, iodine, and of course, castor oil. All right, the next article is also from the Avalanche, October 1st, 1878 edition. And now our Town Marshal A.J. Holland has been stricken. He has said to be a true hero. How diligently he has worked night and day since the, the fever began. Sadly, he has died and will be buried at Magnolia Cemetery with his gold star badge on his chest. Oh, thank you, Laura. Now I have a letter that I wrote while living here in Collierville to my brothers, John and William, who were working in LaGrange in 1878. Dear John and William, I've been told that LaGrange, being so far from the river, is not suffering with this fever that we're suffering with in Collierville. So thanks be to God for your safety. Oh, brothers, when the fever hit our little town, it hit hard. People began fleeing in all directions. I've heard at least 51 families have already left town. Of the 1,200 who used to live here at the beginning of the summer, there are only 200 of us that have stayed behind. Oh, I know you're quite concerned about me, but I just can't make myself leave. I feel a true calling to stay and help those who are sick. Remember what Nana taught us? Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. And with strength, encouragement, and guidance from our Heavenly Father, that's what I'm doing. I've moved temporarily to the Mangum home to nurse the victims of the fever who were hanging by a thread for dear life. Joe Mangum and his immediate family, like so many people of means, have fled. Joe was kind enough to offer us his home for a makeshift hospital and he's even paid for all the expenses. Well, we're afraid that this dreadful disease is caused by bad air. So even with temperatures close to 100, we've boarded up the windows, and we're keeping fires burning in the fireplaces to ward off this contaminated outside air. Thanks be to God, Nurse Elizabeth from the Howard Association has just moved into the Mangum home to help us. She said that consuming champagne will help bring down the fever, and that gin mixed with tonic water will actually ward off yellow fever. So every afternoon we consume a gin and tonic. All right, Miss Anna, once again, we're going to take a deep breath. 
And we're going to exhale. I'm assuming that the yellow fever finally died away. Yes, we didn't know what in the world caused it. Of course, we found out around the turn of the century it was from mosquito bites. But we didn't know at the time. And so we had a very heavy frost that late fall, and it was just a mystery why the fever vanished, but we were so thankful that it did. And that was when I was able to resume teaching at Bellevue Female College late in the fall of 1878. But you know, while living here in Collierville, I just really missed the Episcopal Church, and it was too far to go to LaGrange on a regular basis. So while I mentioned earlier, while I was at the Dyson Convention in Memphis, I asked my dear friend, Reverend Gray, to help us start a mission in Collierville. He was so kind to travel all the way from Bolivar, Tennessee, to Collierville once a month to hold services for us at the Mangum Hunt. The other three Sundays took turns doing morning prayer services. My brothers, John and William, were finally ready to start new lives and they probably wanted to look after their big sister in Collierville. So they moved here and built a mercantile business on the brand new town square and a much dreamed about schoolhouse for me here in Collierville. Weren't they the sweetest brothers ever? My goodness, you did have the sweetest brothers ever. So Anna, tell us more about your school and about the beginnings of St. Andrew's Church. My lovely schoolhouse, located on what is today called 325 South Rowlett Street. It's not far from here, just down the street. We opened that wonderful school in 1881. Unfortunately, I've been told that it was torn down in 1967 to construct a more modern house on the site. But I'm thankful that I still have a photo of my schoolhouse. Believe it or not... I taught school for 55 years. I meant to say 55 glorious years. By 1886, there were about 1,200 people once again living in Collierville. Man, that was a lot of folks. Because our St. Andrew's congregation was getting bigger all the time, we moved our church services from the Mangum home on Natchez to various locations, including my schoolhouse in South Rillette for almost eight years. And before we knew it, we were outgrowing my schoolhouse. So we decided it was time to start raising money to build a new church building. In 1888, this parcel of land where we're sitting today was purchased from the Gavin family for $200, and that was a lot of money in 1888. Let's see. Laura, would you read this little paragraph that was written about our town at that time? Hardships from the destruction of the war, reconstruction, and the yellow fever epidemic still existed in Carterville, but the determination of a small group of faith-filled Episcopalians to build a church in Carterville persevered. Oh, wow. Okay, that gives me goosebumps. I'm guessing now that it was time for the church members to raise more money to build the actual church building, how did y'all go about doing that? We needed lots of money, and we did something really fun. We mailed thousands, literally thousands, of little postcards that looked like bricks to every town in the whole United States that had an Episcopal church. 
we ask those who received our brick postcards to purchase 50 bricks at 10 cents a brick for a total, you guessed it, $5. And let me tell you, donations poured in from all over the country. I'll let Laura read this paragraph that was in the local newspaper. Okay, Anna, let's see here. It has been determined that one railroad president, a leading industrialist, and the head of one of Wall Street's largest banking firms have all made substantial donations to this little Episcopal church they hope to build in Carterville, Tennessee. This fundraiser, along with various other projects, such as selling tickets to musical recitals and other cultural events at my schoolhouse, enabled us to build our lovely Victorian Gothic church where we're sitting today as a classic addition to the town of Collierville for a total cost, drum roll please, $3,000. So I'm guessing after successfully raising all that money, you all had some type of cornerstone ceremony or something in 1890, the cornerstone was laid on April the 22nd. Oh, I remember like it was yesterday. It was a rainy day. Mud was everywhere. Remember, we didn't have paved streets back then. We had packed clay streets. But what a marvelous crowd we had, and we didn't let that rain dampen our spirits. We worked so hard. We were so excited to be placing the cornerstone. It was a solid piece of limestone, about 19 by 27 inches, and the front face was carved with a cross in the date, 1890. Now remember, a cornerstone is symbolic because Jesus is called the cornerstone of Christianity. And just as with any cornerstone, it serves as the base upon which beginnings take form. Now, I have this lead box right here. And inside this actual lead box, which weighs about as much as a gallon of milk, we filled it with all sorts of goodies, kind of like a real time capsule. And we were hoping that a hundred years later, church members could open it and find out about the early days of the church. Unfortunately, back then, we didn't have what you all call laminating machines or plastic bags or anything to seal and protect our little treasure. So the time capsule, I've been told, was removed from the cornerstone in 1991 at the 100-year celebration. Church members took this lead box to the University of Memphis in their anthropology department, looked inside, and they found a rusty, oval-shaped brass church medallion, an Indian head penny from 1890, and a rolled up what they think was a piece of paper wrapped in a sheet of leather that was very damp, and they described it as kind of mushy. And they also found two tablespoons of water, and we've laughed about that, wondering, did that moisture seep into this box the day of the cornerstone, and think how many times it melted and froze through the years. We'll never know that. But I was told that the 1991 Centennial Celebration Church members sealed what was called, I have no idea what this is, but they called it microfilm and things like a 1991 penny. They buried a new capsule for members to uncover in 2091. And hopefully all of that material will survive and church members can find out all about St. Andrews. And who knows? 
You may still be around then. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all of that, Anna. Now, I really want to get back to the actual church building. Can you describe the architecture, maybe the lovely stained glass windows at St. Andrews? The church is built, as you can see, in the form of a cross with the pointed arches and beautiful warm wood tones. If you look straight up, you'll see that the inside of the church was built to resemble an upside-down ship, such as the ark, which is a symbol for safety from the storms of life. Now, the window above the altar faces the east, thereby the light of the rising sun, as well as Jesus when he comes again. The four exquisite medallions represent the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, one of the most important important symbolic elements which makes this particular building different from other buildings such as say a bowling alley or an auditorium is that the windows were designed to control the amount of light that comes into the building to create an awareness of God and to really create a desire for prayer and meditation. Don't you just love that? And the entry of our church features 12-foot Victorian Gothic double doors with a stained glass window called the Bible window way above the doors. Both the Jesus window and the Bible window were made by hand and installed in 1890. Now, they tell me that during a hailstorm in the 1940s, the Bible medallion in the center of the Bible window fell from the window and landed on the floor inside the church doors. Thankfully, it was repaired for a cost of $200. And another story relates that the entire Bible window fell from its position and landed on the floor beneath without a pane being broken. Some say that angels caught it and placed it carefully on the floor. You'll also notice the transom window just above the front doors. The round circles are called buckshots because they begin as small balls of glass and then they're fired into the form seen in the window today. Now, the breathtaking windows along the north and the south sides of the church, they contain eight stained glass 13-inch medallions. And because I do have a little bit of French blood in my family, I think I just really love those. <laughs> they're exquisite and quite rare, and they're French in origin. They reflect the use of rich colors used in making of stained glass in France in the 1800s. These were purchased and donated by our then Episcopal Bishop, Charles Todd Quintard. He obtained them after attending a special conference with the Archbishop of Canterbury in England around 1881. So I've been told that one of the smaller windows near the front doors of the church, it has a connection to a little fellow known as the Bell Ringer of St. Andrews. I've been told that a young fellow named Michael O'Dell Benefield served as what, we, what they call the bell ringer of St. Andrews years ago. He was the son of a family from Georgia who brought him in the late 1960s to Memphis for treatment at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital for leukemia. His condition, they say, improved for a couple of years. And it was at this hospital that Henry and Betty Mitchell who were parishioners at St. Andrews, befriended this little boy while doing volunteer work at the hospital. For two years, they often brought Michael and his family to their farm near Cordova, 
you know, just to get away for the weekend. And they always attended St. Andrew's for Sunday services. Michael just fell in love with this church, and he wanted to serve as an acolyte and carry the torch or even a cross down the aisle, but he just wasn't strong enough due to his illness and his treatments. So the priest, Father Dargan and Henry Mitchell, told Michael he could have the all-important job of helping them ring the bell at the beginning and, again, at the end of the service. Well, Michael loved his new job and was asked by Mrs. Beth Lewis to ring the bell at her daughter's wedding. Michael was baptized on Palm Sunday, March 30th, 1969, by Father Dargan. Sadly, Michael passed away in 1970. And in April of that year, the Mitchell family had the bell medallion added to the original small window, along with an engraved plaque dedicated to the memory of this precious young fellow who will always be remembered as our bell ringer. I've been told that when people see this bell window in St. Andrews, they like to remember him and say what he said all those years ago, I love St. Andrews and St. Andrews loves me. Well, now that we've heard that beautiful, heartfelt story about the bell ringer, I'd really like to know more about the actual bell of St. Andrews. The bell of St. Andrews has sounded across this community since being hung in the bell tower following completion of the church in 1891. To sound the call to worship or to end the service, the rope that is on the left side of the doors is pulled, and it makes a rather joyful sound. Now, the rope on the right side is only pulled at funerals. There's a plate inside the bell that produces a rather sad and somber sound. I've been told that through the years the bell's gotten stuck a time or two, and the fire department has had to come out and rescue. Oh, my. I've been told that that bell weighs 350 pounds, and it was one of four in the old part of Collierville near the town square in the late 1800s. The old Methodist church right behind us is on the town square. The Presbyterian church was across the street, and the Christian church was at the corner of Poplar and Main Street. All of us had bells to sound the call to worship. There's a funny story I've got to tell you about Helen Mangum, one of our early members. She loved to tell this story about the bells being rung by pranksters on Halloween or any time the youngsters could slip inside any of the four churches. From her home on Natchez Street, she could hear the bells ringing, and she could always recognize which church bell was ringing because they all four had different sounds. So not to worry, the mothers of Collierville always knew where their little pranksters were. The children got caught every time because, remember, back then, we all knew every person in town by name, and we knew their whole family history as well. I've been told that you, Miss Anna, served this church as the Sunday school teacher for many, many years. We want to hear more about that. Yes, Monday through Friday was just not enough teaching for me <laughs> all those 55 years. And I actually taught Sunday school for even more years than that. It was on these yellow pine pews that you see right here in the back of the church where I taught the first Sunday school class 
on Sunday afternoons. I taught my Sunday school students that the design of this church leads us on a clear path from the first step that you take inside the door all the way to God at the altar. That's why we have three sections of the church. First, where we're sitting today with the pews is called the nave. Second part is called the chancel between the nave and the altar. The third section is the sanctuary, the altar area. And remember I said the center aisle is always open. Now the nave, where everybody sits, is symbolic of something I mentioned earlier. You might remember. It's a ship. It reminds us of the ark in which people found refuge from the flood. And the nave represents life in the world. Nave actually comes from the Latin word for ship. Up from the nave, always towards God, is the chancel, separated from the nave by an architectural feature such as carved wood. And the chancel represents life in paradise. Upward from the chancel is the sanctuary, or holy of holy places. It's separated by our altar rail. That symbolizes the bar of judgment, separating humans from God. Christians stretch their hands over the altar rail during communion to receive holy communion. Mm -hmm. The sanctuary, the altar area, represents the final admission to the presence of God. And another interesting thing that you can see right down the aisle is that we have three steps ascending from the nave to the chancel, and these represent what you probably think, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that some of our listeners may be wondering how the founding members came up with the name of the church, St. Andrews. Well, many of our founding church members, including my papa's family, were of Scottish descent. Because St. Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland, I'm telling you, it was an easy choice. Of course, we all know that Andrew was the first fellow asked by Jesus to follow him and become one of the twelve apostles. And following the crucifixion of Christ, Andrew preached until he too was crucified in Greece. He wanted his cross to be different from the cross of Jesus, so his was an X-shaped cross. That's why you see the X on the flag of Scotland, on the Union Jack flag, and even on our St. Andrew's logo and flag. Miss Anna, thank you so very, very much for visiting with us today. Do you have any closing remarks that you'd like to share with our listening audience? Oh, you know I do. <laughs> I must tell you that as one of the founding members of this beautiful church, I am thrilled that St. Andrews continues to meet in its original location. In fact, I understand it's the only church in Collierville with an active congregation that remains only at its original site near the town square. And boy, howdy, St. Andrews continues to grow. While it's hard for me to believe that this church now has two services on Sundays, and one on Saturday, as well as Sunday school and Bible study classes, so many special events for all ages, all year long. Why, there seems to be something, they say, for everyone in this church. I'm so very thankful that this church at the corner of Walnut and Mulberry Streets was built on a firm foundation. I pray that this church will be here for many more years to come, and what some folks still consider a small town. Collierville, Tennessee. 
And as we leave here today, it's my prayer that we will all inspire others with the spirit of joy, of gladness, and optimism, and that the eyes of our souls will be able to see good in all things. May God bless each and every one of you, and thank you ever so much for allowing me to visit with you today. Well, most of you remember Miss Elizabeth Parr, a popular resident of this town and a member of this parish for many years. Well, Miss Elizabeth, she died in 2011 at the ripe young age of 103. Well, guess what? She actually knew Miss Anna Holden well. She said that Miss Anna was such a lovely lady who had long, dark hair pulled back on top and that she often wore one of her many hats, especially a favorite straw hat with cherries attached to the back. She also shared that Miss Anna was a beloved member of two communities, her hometown of LaGrange and her adopted hometown of Carterville. Miss Parr concluded that Miss Anna Holden was thoughtful and wise, touched so many hearts, and her compassion as she taught school for 55 years and volunteered countless hours at this church. Miss Anna was truly in an embodiment of grace. On April 15, 1921, Miss Anna Holden died peacefully in her sleep at the age of 78. An article relating her death reported that she made a splendid record in the schools. Quote, leaving the impression of her noble and unselfish character on many of the men and women of this state. End quote. In addition to the funeral service at her beloved St. Andrews, a community memorial service was held at the Carville School where the Anna Holden Scholarship Loan Fund was established in her honor. Students brought nickels and dimes, and friends and relatives made generous donations. A sum of $2,000 was given in her name to the Peabody College in Nashville. She is buried at Magnolia Cemetery just a few blocks away from here. The epitaph on her simple headstone reads, She hath done what she could. Mark 14, 18. so much for joining us this week for Faithfully Memphis. Thank you so much, especially to WYXR 91.7, our Crosstown radio home. You give us a place where we can tell our stories. Thank you, WYXR. You can listen to past episodes of Faithfully Memphis on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like our show, please leave us a positive review and a comment in Apple Podcasts that really helps us share the word about our show. You can learn more about the Episcopal Church in West Tennessee and churches 
within our diocese, in our faith community, on our website, edwtn.org. And you can list, you can learn about St. Andrew's Episcopal Church, which we learned about today, on their website, standrews.org. That's S-T-A-N-D-R-E-W-S, Collierville.org. Thank you so much again for joining us today. And until next time, stay safe and stay positive. <laughs>